0: We turn now to the chapter that we read there in 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. And we are, of course, continuing on with our study in the life of David. Well, friends, I think that... um, If it was difficult over the last few weeks to hear of David's actions with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, then it is even more difficult to hear in this chapter of the actions of David's two sons, Amnon and Absalom. We mentioned last week in looking at what Nathan said to David, we noticed there the consequences that were outlined for David's sin. Nathan came to him and said, Thou art the man. But the punishment was that the sword would not depart from the house of David. That was given. As a sentence. But the actual carrying out of that sentence. Well in particular at least. Comes forward into this chapter. We move. Beyond that general word and warning. To the thing itself. We move to see. The way that the consequence of David's sin fall upon his own house. And we see really in this chapter almost the breaking apart of the household of David. The sword that he had kept at arm's length by getting the Ammonite sword to kill Uriah, that sword comes right into his own home, right into his own inner closest family and turns against the family of David the king. And as that happens, we are suddenly introduced to life on the inside of the palace of David. We get interactions of David with this enemy or with that enemy. But here we suddenly get a little bit of an insight into what life was like within the royal household. There is in this chapter an undeniable ugly nearness and intimacy We suddenly get close up to these people. Right up to see what they're like. Too close for our comfort, I think, for most of us reading it through. The sons and the daughter of David. What do we find when we get into that household? Not an example of godliness. Not a a household that is flourishing in the things of the Lord. No, we find sin. And we find sin to an extraordinary degree. it's an unpleasant chapter to look at in many ways and I'm sure that as some of you anticipated that this chapter was coming up because you know what happens in the life of David you may have wondered if it couldn't just be skipped over if we couldn't sort of brush over it in some way well friends we are bound To say what God says. And if God has said this is worth putting in his word. It is worth us studying it in his word. It's not to be a card. That we sit in judgment over God's word. With our own sensitivities and sensibilities. Your conscience and my conscience. Are not more pure. Than the word of God. We don't hold a higher standard of morality than God does. And so if God has put this in his word, and he has, and all of his word is inspired directly by himself, and as Timothy tells us, or Paul in Timothy's letter tells us, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, then we cannot avoid dealing with this chapter this evening. But in doing that, we are not going to glamorize sin. We will deal with the text. We will not linger over it. We will not glamorize sin in any way. We will not sensationalize it. As the Lord will help us. So here we have a sad chapter. Here we have a chapter that is full of sin. Now we have four points This evening. Sin here is a chastisement of David. That is essential to understanding what's happening in this chapter. That these events are part of the chastisement promised in the previous chapter. So, this sin here is a chastisement of David. Secondly, and in contrast to what's gone before, sin here is not. Recovered by grace. It is left to go to its own ends. Thirdly, sin here is an attack on David's line and the covenant that God has made with him. And fourthly, sin here is the opposite of love. These are the four points. As we look at the chapter. First of all then. Sin here is a chastisement of David. Across the whole. Of the sorry episode. God has erected this banner. Chastisement. The correction of my servant. For his sin. The consequences of sin. Even in saints. Nathan had warned David that the sword would not depart from his home, that the Lord would raise up an adversary from within his own home, and that the woman of his home would be given openly to others. Now, David likely took that to mean his concubines and his extended wives, and that is also how our translation gives it in verse tw- in chapter 12 in the previous chapter. It is his wives. But the word is broad and equally up could be translated just as well, woman. David's woman, the woman associated with him. And how little probably David thought that it would ever come to the door of his own dear little daughter, Tamar. Tamar is, I think, really the only person in this whole chapter who emerges with some credit and integrity for all that she goes through in the course of it. When she's attacked by her scheming brother Amnon, she pleads with him not to do this. She reasons with him. She begs him. Such a thing ought not to be done in this world. You'll be as a fool for doing this. And then at last in desperation. If you must bring it to the king. Ask the king. Almost certainly we think hoping. That the king would of course. Rule such a union. Unlawful. And it would be. Stopped. Well now David comes to know. What it was like. To see your daughter abused by a powerful man. Eliam. Who was Eliam? Eliam knew what David was going through. Eliam was Bathsheba's father. And her grandfather, Bathsheba's grandfather, knew of it as well. Pain of seeing your granddaughter. Taken advantage of by a powerful man. Bathsheba's grandfather. is a man called Ahithophel. will come up later in the book of Samuel. But the pain that David brought on others. Is now revisited upon his own head. And the suffering that he endures. Is what they knew. His fury at Amnon there in verse 21 when David heard all these things. He was very wroth. He was very angry. But he did nothing about it. David doesn't give vent to his fury. He merely fizzes up privately. David had you see been paralyzed. From acting in justice. By his own sinful past. Revisited upon his lovely daughter. And the whole scenario then moves on from that sordid incident, that episode, to the scheming of Absalom. Absalom is Tamar's full brother, or Tamar is his full sister. Others, uh, Amnon was a half brother, but Absalom and Tamar have the same mother, as well, of course, as David as their father. And Absalom and Tamar's mother is a woman called Ma'akah. Amnon's uh, mother was Ahinoam, the this. Well, Tamar emerges or is thrust out of, Am- of Amnon's room and immediately breaks down into a-, a screaming cry of sorrow. And in devastation, this woman tears her beautiful, diverse colored robe and weeps with ash upon her head. Absalom comes along. Maybe he heard the disturbance. Maybe he recognised his sister's voice. And he seems to guess right away what has happened. It would seem that Amnon's infatuation is not really a secret at all. And Absalom guesses what has happened. And Absalom takes his sister and speaks gently to her. And shelters her in his own home. And two years pass. But Absalom does not forget. He watches his father steam away in fury and do nothing about it. And two years pass. And Absalom says not one word to Amnon about it, whether good or bad. And at a feast, there's a sheep shearing. At the end of the shearing of the sheep then, there was a great feast held by the owner of the flock. And at that feast, that year, Amnon set his plans in motion plans to, uh, Absalom set his plans in motion, plans to murder his brother Amnon for what he had done in forcing Tamar. And the whole thing is carried out, despite David seeming to have some unease about it, despite David seeming to know something was wrong. And again, David seems powerless to stop it, seems to be the last to understand what is happening. As we find out later, even that crafty and shady character Jonadab who appears twice in this passage a nephew of David's a cousin of these people knows all about what's happening knows exactly who's been killed and who hasn't but David doesn't know the king doesn't know For a moment David believes that all his sons are dead with the exception of Absalom that Absalom has murdered them all what a fearful moment that must have been for David. You see, from seventh commandment sins, things have stepped back to sixth commandment sins thou shalt not kill. And murder comes once more to the fore in the house of David. Murder most foul. David the murderer has murder revisited upon his own son. And so David's twin sins of adultery and murder are now eating away at his own home with all the added intensity and heinousness of such things being done between family members. And David must have felt his own hand in it all. He knew the part he had played. He knew that he himself had paved the way For these vile sins, that David had welcomed them into his home and was, in a measure, responsible. Now, these are not David's sins, these are part of David's chastisements. Amnon and Absalom are responsible for their own acts, but David is suffering for his sins too, and we can see that. Dear friends, do we know that? When we see sins in our homes. In our home. Sins that we know we have introduced into our home. Sins that we her- ourselves have practiced. Does it cut and bite our conscience? To see what we have brought in. And that others are now following. Remember the warning to David. What he had done secretly, God would do upon him openly. Can you imagine, friend, if that principle still holds? And who's to say it does not? What we do secretly, God will show openly against us. What if what we do secretly comes out openly? In our own homes, in the lives of our loved ones, in the lives of our children or our children's children. It's a solemn thought, friends, it's a fearful thought. What a plague of sin there is in our lives. And what a whirlwind we are reaping if we are sowing the wind of our sins. And what a whirlwind will be returned in the lives of our children and young people. Look again at our society, even our community here in Lewis, here in Ness. And apply this, if you dare to apply it. That the sins that we are seeing sweeping across our community, our island community, are the chastisement upon the Lord of the Lord, upon us, for our secret sins that the Lord is now bringing out openly. Openly. And if we think on that, surely we can but cry one thing. Oh, for mercy. Whilst we read this chapter and we abhor Amnon and we condemn Absalom. While we read the chapter, remember David. The sin of this chapter then is God chastising David. And we need to have that in place to understand the chapter. Secondly, we need to move on. Sin here is not recovered by grace. You see in chapter 11 and 12. That unit of, the day of David's sin with Bathsheba. His murder of Uriah. And his recovery by the word of God through Nathan. We have two devastating chapters. On the awfulness of David's sin. Adultery, deceit and, mem- and murder. But do you remember how chapter 11 closed? If you turn back to it. The end of chapter 11 says. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now that's obvious in one sense. Sin always displeases the Lord. Every time someone sins it displeases the Lord. There is no sin that God approves. There is no evil that he endorses. But that little phrase at the end of chapter 11 is the crux of the matter for David. It's the hinge upon which the whole thing turns. It's the intimation that the Lord was going to do for David what he could not do that is, stop him in this trajectory and pathway of sin. And God was going to recover him to repentance. And the Lord sent Nathan. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. There's the change. Beginning of the recovery of David. And that changes everything in chapter 12 from chapter 11. But as we wade through the muck and the mire of this chapter. From vile sin to evil act. There is no mention of the Lord. There is no mention of the displeasure of the Lord. There is no word of Nathan riding to the rescue like the cavalry. Coming over the horizon of the text. And suddenly landing in front of these men. And arresting them with the word of God. And recovering them by grace. There is no piercing parable or pointed finger to either of these two men saying thou art the man. And you see for David yes this is the chastisement of his heavenly father for his sin in the recovery process from a fearful fall. But for his two wicked sons this is unrestrained sin. And unrecovered guilt. No repenting. Ever comes into their lives. No rebuke from God. Is ever transmitted to them. And the worst thing friends. Of someone falling into sin. Is them being left there by God. So when these two men. As they plot their evil. As you wait for a third party to come. It's not Nathan the prophet. The godly seer. No. It's scheming subtle Jonadab. The crafty interloper. Egging them both on. To unleash chaos. On the house of David. And that in so many ways. I think is what makes this chapter. As a whole. So distasteful. So offensive to us that we can hardly bear to read it and to look at it. This is sin, you see, in its full ugliness. This is sin that we know will not be recovered. That is without repentance. Exposed, uncovered in its malice. This is sin operating beyond the bounds of saving grace. Not because grace cannot save at such extremity. But because here we are shown what happens when it is withdrawn. And it is horrid. Horrible. Now, As we said before, Tamar, who cannot physically fight off her attacker. She still appeals to the law of God. And she objects and she maintains her true innocence. But apart from her, the chapter is dark and gloomy. Now friends, some of you here have already known... ...the powerful convictions of sin in your life. You who are unsaved... ...some of you have known what it is to be caught... ...in the vice grip of conscience over your own sin... You have experienced even perhaps the mighty striving of the thrice Holy Spirit of God. Shaking you to the very foundation of your soul. Upending your ease and exposing your guilt. And you are terrified. But all of us in one measure or another have known guilt. If not to that extreme. All of us at- one time or another, have known the misery of guiltiness hanging about our persons, and that bitter self-condemnation for our own foolishness and sin. But friend, even if you take the time when you felt worst about a sin you committed, that time when guilt was almost unbearable, the most guilty you have ever felt, What if that sin had been allowed to go further? And you know it could have done. What if that worst guiltiness you ever knew. Had been allowed to carry on. And gather pace. And build into something worse. What if it had not been stopped? Not by providence. Not by common grace. Not by conscience. Not by God's justice in some way. What if it had been allowed to fester? What if that sin had been allowed to grow? And to take over your life and soul. How bad would it be then? How evil would it be by now? You see, sin not recovered by grace. Won't stop. It doesn't stop. It can't stop. And it leaves behind the devastation that you see in our chapter tonight. If you wonder what will happen to me. If my sin is not stopped by God. Well this chapter in one way is a mirror. For sin unrestrained. And unrecovered by grace. Thirdly. Sin here is an attack on David's line. Or covenant. We have to keep in mind. In any part of the word of God. The context. The context This is a long chapter. It took us a while to read it. But there's a context that extends backwards and forwards far beyond the bounds of this chapter. Even beyond the previous chapter or two and the sin of Bathsheba. We've already taken in something of that context. The wider context is that God has made a promise. God has bound himself by a covenantal commitment to David back in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel now if you go back to chapter 7 for a moment and verse 11 at the end of verse 11 of chapter 7 also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house remember David Wanted to build a house for God. Wanted to build a temple. But instead of being allowed to do that... He was blessed with God telling him... That God would build David a house. That is a dynasty. The Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled... And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers... I will set up thy seed after thee... Which shall proceed out of thy bowels... And I will establish his kingdom... He shall build an house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. And he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity I will chasten him with the rod of men. And with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him. As I took it from Saul. Whom I put away before thee. And thine house. And thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Ah, Thy throne shall be established forever. The Lord gave the specific assurance to David that his seed would flourish. But more than that, that his kingdom and seed would be established forever. And that promise right there to David is really a promise about the Messiah. A promise about the future son of David. That through the line of David, salvation would come to the world and come to us as Gentiles here on the very edges of the continent of Europe. Now that promise is called the Davidic covenant. God's commitment to David. It was from this that the Messiah came to be known amongst the Jews as the Son of David. When they spoke about the Son of David, it was code for the Messiah whom God will send. And that blind man on the outskirts of Jericho, Bartimaeus, made reference to it when he knew that Jesus was passing by. He didn't say Jesus He said, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. And that blind man was claiming that the promise to David was fulfilled in Jesus. He was applying the Davidic covenant and promise to Jesus, the savior of sinners. Now, we all know that. We know the the forward trajectory of the house of David. But here in chapter 13, that promise made in chapter 7 looks pretty shaky. That promise that David's line and David's family would be established forever. Well, it doesn't look much like it. It's going pretty badly wrong, even before David has passed on. Right now, the family of David are experiencing an incredible attack from sin. Amnon, first of all, Amnon, as we said, was the son of uh, Ahinoam, the Jesuitess. Amnon was also the crown prince. Amnon was the firstborn son of David, and that matters. Because that means he was heir to the throne, naturally. It means that Amnon was the one in whose line this promise would be fulfilled if we were expecting it to be according to the ordinary manner of things. And yet in this chapter, even just by halfway through it, Amnon is brought down to the gutter by his own sinful desires and violence. And by his own sin, he very convincingly disqualifies himself from ever being considered as a contender for the throne of Israel, the people of God. Who would want a man like that as their king? Who would follow such a A knave into battle. Who would be willing to serve him wherever he went? His vile approach. His self-centeredness. His self-obsession, you might say. His cruelty. These all evidence a man very far from being after God's own heart. The way David was. The firstborn son disqualifies himself. Who's next up? Bring on the house of David. David. The second son was a man called Kilian, His mother was Abigail. As far as we can tell. He likely died a young boy. He is never mentioned in scripture. Beyond the fact that he was born. That forces us down into third in line. Who is third in line? Will God's promise be fulfilled. And his covenant be kept by the third in line. Well Hardly the third born son is Absalom Absalom was the son of Makah. now Macca was herself a princess, she was of royal stock her father was King Talmai of Geshur, Geshur was a, a city on the other side of the river Jordan and so Macca this princess of Geshur was married to David And their firstborn son together was Absalom, third in line. You can imagine that such a privileged position, such a royal position on both sides, fostered a craving in this young man for a throne of his own. It fostered a vanity that left him with a sense of entitlement and self obsession and absorption. Nevertheless, he at least. is recorded with enough wit to notice what happened to his sister, Tamar. And Absalom cares for his sister in his own home, no doubt at his own expense, after the event, and gives some measure of comfort to her in his words. And he didn't forget. Perhaps he was waiting for his father's fury to evidence itself in justice, but it never came. Absalom wouldn't forget he never let it go he wouldn't speak to Amnon he kept it in his heart for two years until he could come up with a plan of how to execute justice the particular brand of justice at least that he had decided upon he'd have all his brothers out for a feast in the country and then far away in Ephraim far away from the center of things far away from prying eyes Amnon would die when the request comes to David, David seems to instinctively know something's up. He's wary about it all. He doesn't want to go. He first of all says, it'll be too much of an expense for you. We won't bother to go all the way there, put you to all that cost. David is stalling. But then Amnon comes back. Well, at least uh, Absalom comes back, at least send Amnon. Why just send Amnon? David's suspicions are even more roused by now. So rather than just send Amnon, he sends all of the boys, all of the sons, and they all go together. David no doubt thinking that if there was bad blood there, there would be safety in numbers. But that makes no difference. <coughs> Absalom sees to it that his half-brother, the man who had assaulted his sister, dies. And the others all flee. But what now? Where is the promise now? And uh, uh, Absalom himself runs away too. Goes back to where? To his mother's royal city of Geshur across the Jordan. To Talmai the king. Where is the promise of the Messiah? Where is the hope of a savior left to come from? What is left of the decimated house of David? As you look after son after son. Eh, ex- exclude themselves. From taking on the mantle. We need to have that context. We need to see the attacks of sin in this chapter. That's what they are. They are attacks against the line and covenant of David. The attempts of Satan to destroy the line of David. Why? So that no saviour will ever be born in this world. To save sinners. Or to crush the head of the serpent. That's what it's all about. That's what the chapter. Unfolds. The attempt of Satan. To derail. The plan of God. To send a saviour into the world. Through the line of David. That doesn't. In any way I don't believe. lessen The grief and the human grief. Of what happened in the recorded incidents. Of this chapter. It doesn't in any way take away from, or denigrate, or uh, relegate the revulsion at the kinds of sin that are here recorded, or at the innocent suffering of Tamar. But ultimately, chapter 13 is not just a record of family sin. It's not even just a record of the consequences of David's sin that fell in his own house. It's a record of how Satan would use anything at all to try and stop the coming of the seed of the woman who he knew would destroy him. Sin is anti-God. Sin is the opponent of the goodness of God. Sin always aims to ruin the plan and purposes of our gracious God. That covenant that God made is facing an all out assault in this chapter, just as surely as Tamar was. Try to keep in view the big picture without lessening our abhorrence of the sin in the chapter. Notice, sin seeks to cut off salvation. Seeks to deny our race its promised saviour. And this is yet another instance of it. And that's at the core of sin. That's at the core of your sin, my sin, and all sin. As it was with Adam in the garden... It seeks to put up such a barrier between God and man. That there's no hope left. Think about your own sin like that. You're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. You know you have sinned today. Maybe your conscience has struck you about your sin. Think about your sin like this. Sin is self-murder. Sin is the sinner choosing to try and make himself... Beyond the reach of the grace of God to save them. Sin is trying to cut off hope of a Saviour for you. It's been doing it for thousands and thousands of years since man first fell in the garden. Dear friends, look again at this chapter and view it in this way as an all out assault against the purpose of God to save sinners. Now then, will it succeed? Now takes us to our final point. Sin here is the opposite of love. Sin here is the opposite. There is nothing, nothing of love in sin. Amnon thought himself desperately in love with Tamar, but that illusion dissolved instantly. With the moment of his attack. And the completion of his forcing of it. And the hatred of his heart. Masked by this illusion of love. Suddenly rises up and shows itself in all its ugliness. He couldn't stand the sight of her. He wanted her gone. He thrust her out and locked the door behind him. Why? Because she was the unbearable reminder of his guilt. And he hated her. There is no love in sin. Not even when it pretends that there is. Look at the the relationships in David's house and family. His nephew, Jonadab, David's nephew, a schemer of a boy. Look at his own boys, Amnon and Absalom, brothers who ought to love each other. They hate each other. Look at Absalom. Absalom kills. His own brother. You might say, with some provocation, with certain circumstances, I grant you that. But sin here is the very opposite of love. You look at Amnon. You know what his name means. Faithful, or true. What a sorry name! How far short of his name! He came. He was anything but Amnon. He was anything but faithful, anything but true. You know what Absalom means? Father of peace. Absalom brought more devastation and havoc into the house of David than any of the other sons. Jonadab, cousin, his name literally means he gives liberally. All he gives is bad advice and evil schemes. Crafty, shady, shadowy character. What's happening in this chapter? Is sin triumphant? Has sin won out? Is the house of David ruined by the end of the chapter? No. Why not? Because we have to widen our focus again. Where to? To the answer God has already provided. You look at things going wrong, and then you might want to look into chapter 14 and see, well, when's it going to go right? When's it's already gone right. God doesn't react to events. He already knows the answer before the question is asked. It's never that God has to make up something else to correct how things have gone wrong. Perhaps we didn't notice God putting in the answer before the question. Perhaps we think even Satan didn't notice that the provision was somewhere else. That the line of Messiah was secure. He guessed the line would go through Amnon. And if not Amnon, probably Absalom. He was wrong. David has another son. Still very young. Probably a few years old. Solomon. But Solomon has another name. Look back at chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now we know him as Solomon. We don't often remember him as Jedidiah. But Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. And so the love of God toward the sons of David was already given. It was already there. It was already safeguarded. The line was there. The answer was there. In little Solomon. Because sin here is the opposite of love. There's no love to Tamar. There's no love between Absalom and Amnon. But the Lord has chosen the object of his love already. And the covenant is secure. And the line is secure. And the saviour has come. And all of Satan's wiles have been insufficient to deny this world its saviour. And that means that in the gospel tonight as we close. Still there is a saviour to declare. There is a Christ to preach. There is a gospel to hear. There is a salvation to come to. There's a forgiveness to experience that is the Son of David, the one who truly is beloved of the Lord. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Sin is the opposite of love, but the love of God has overcome the assaults of sin against his plan and purpose to save sinners graciously, freely and fully through his son Jesus. And you who know something of your sin tonight under the preaching of the gospel, you who can see the consequences of it cascading through your life and the life of your family and friends, you need a saviour. And praise God that your sin has not demolished the Saviour. Has not got him out of the way. Has not prevented his coming. Nor had it ever done so. Christ has come. The Saviour is here to be declared. And here for sinners still. Come this night to Christ. In the Gospel. Don't delay. Don't allow sin another foothold in your life. To put it off one more day. May God bless his word. Let us pray.